0: To the Prophecy Club. I'm going to explain the offer at the end of today's program. Right now, let's go on and listen to Stan Monteith in Secrets of the Illuminati. Tonight's topic is Secrets of the Illuminati. Well, you're in for a treat because you're about to start understanding prophecy a lot better by understanding the history and the conspiracy that is pulling strings behind the scenes. Our speaker has spent 37 years researching the Illuminati He's one of the world's leading authorities, I'm Professor Carol Quigley, which is President Clinton's mentor. He'll present new information to help us better understand this world conspiracy. He's going to talk on things like the Federal Reserve, which is neither federal and has doubtful reserves, the Rhodes Scholar, which we are led to believe is a wonderful uh, academic achievement, and what they're really doing is quite evil, the Jesuits. The Lucius Trust, the Masons, Skull and Bones, Rosicrucians, Trilateral Commission, Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderbergers, and a whole lot more. Now, in many other videotapes, which is, by the way, part of our special, as you saw at the beginning, the end of the videotape, we have other information uh, about these subjects. But what he's going to do tonight that is so powerful, he's going to weave this together in an overall picture to better help us understand this world conspiracy that has been going on since the dawn of time. Will you help me welcome Dr. Stan Monteith.
1: One of the leading occult philosophers of all time was a man named Manly P. Hall. And in his classic book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, He said that you can trace the history and the presence of the occult organizations throughout history by simply looking at pictures or looking at books or looking at woodcuts or looking at architecture because they use logos, they use symbols. Their presence is very obvious to those within the inside. But tragically, most people, the average individual, has no knowledge of the presence of these dark and sinister spiritual forces. Now, I want to convince you of three things. The first is that an understanding of the forces that have shaped the events of the 20th century is predicated not upon facts to be learned, but rather upon secrets to be discovered. The second is that men and women become accomplices to those evils they fail to oppose. And third, Uh, that the price that men and women pay for the apathy and indifference to public affairs is they are ruled by evil men. And I'd like to suggest today that we truly are ruled by evil men. Now, you'll be able to better understand uh, the background of the history I'm about to tell you uh, by reviewing three poems. The first was written by Albert Lord Tennyson in 1842. Uh, The second was written by Rudyard Kipling in 1902. And the third poem was written by James Russell Lowell uh, in the 1840s or 1850s. Now, the first two poems and their significance are known to those people who work behind the scenes, but not to the average individual. When we talk about tennis, and most people remember his wonderful poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, uh, you know, cannons to the right of them, cannons to the left of them, cannons before them volleyed and thundered, stormed by shot and sail, bravely they rode and well into the jaws of death, into the gates of hell, rode the 600. But the poem that shaped the events of the 20th century was called Locksley Hall. Now, in my Encyclopedia Americana, they have a full page about a poem nobody ever heard of. But believe me, the people on the inside, those people who understand the unfolding of world events and are making them happen, understand the significance of this poem. And this is what Albert... Lord Tennyson wrote what Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote for I dipped into the future far as any eye could see saw a vision of the world and all the wonders that would be heard the heavens filled with shouting and the rain to ghastly dew, of the nation's airy navies grappling in the central blue till the war drum throbbed no longer and the battle flags were furled in the parliament of man the federation of the world and that's what it was about This idea of the parliament of man, the federation of the world, the establishment of a world government. Now, the ideas that Tennyson put forward in this poem captured the imagination of subsequent generations of of people. One of them, of course, was a professor uh, who would be teaching at Oxford University in 1870. His name was Professor John Ruskin. And, of course, this professor was a disciple of Plato, an avowed communist and socialist, uh, and he thought this was a wonderful idea, and he passed this information on to many of his students. Students then were shaped the events that would occur in the early part of this century. Uh, Another man was a gentleman named Edward Bellamy. And Edward Bellamy wrote a book that was published in 1888 entitled Looking Backward, Now, uh, this was a fascinating book because it was no sooner published than Bellamy Clubs sprang up all over Great Britain and all over the United States, pushing the socialist utopia uh, that he described. And basically, this is a story uh, of an Englishman who fell asleep uh, in 1888, I guess it was, and and slept until the year 2000. He took a sedative. It was very effective. He woke up in the year 2000, and he described what the world would be like in that world that we're approaching, and approaching very, very rapidly. And he commented at that time that an American credit card will be just as good in Europe as uh, gold once was. Now, remember, this was written 111 years ago today, uh, at the present time. 111 years ago, uh, Bellamy knew what the future held. Could you imagine people, even at the turn of the century or in the 50s, saying an American credit card will be just as good in Europe as gold once was? Uh, He described what had happened, is that the corporations kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, and the corporations began absorbing other corporations until there was just a great trust that ruled everything. The great trust and government, the great corporation and the government, controlled everything and provided for every people person from the cradle to the grave, and everybody was just so very, very happy. A wonderful utopian view of history. And of course, what Edward Bellamy wrote is, For I dipped into the future far as any eye could see, saw a vision of the world and all the wonder there would be, till the war drum throbbed no longer and the battle flags were furled in the Parliament of Man and the Federation of the World. It was just five years after Bellamy wrote that uh, when... Andrew Carnegie published his book, Triumphant Democracy. Now, uh, those of you who are victims of a liberal education, as I was, probably look upon Andrew Carnegie as a robber baron. But actually, he took the vast fortune that he accumulated when he sold uh, U.S. steel to J.P. Morgan. And he invested that in foundations and endowments which were to bear his name to convert America from a free into a socialist society. And so there won't be any question when we talk about socialism. Socialism is a sincere, benevolent, idealistic concept by which the government provides for everybody, uh, from each according to their ability to each according to their need, and regulates the lives of people. Uh, But in truth, socialism has to have force. Somebody's got to be in charge. And what happens is you replace a free society with a feudal society because everybody is controlled by government, The government is controlled by politicians. Politicians are sold by those of great wealth. And you move from a society that evolved from England under the Magna Carta to these ideas of individual liberty and then were uh, suddenly dramatically changed. They became America, this dream of people being free under God. Uh, We destroy that concept and we supplant it with this idea of an all-powerful government that regulates people from the cradle to the grave. And so it was that Andrew Carnegie, in his book, triumphant democracy wrote, and just look at the part that's underlined where he says the parliament of man and the federation of the world have already been hailed by the poet, but these mean a step much further in advance of the proposed reunion of Britain and America. And so this whole idea was to begin to unite the world in pursuit of this dream of world government. 151 years after Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote the the poem Loxley Hall, this editorial appeared on the pages of the Wall Street Journal. It's written by Arthur Schlesinger. It's entitled Bye Bye Woodrow. And it's the idea that at that time there was opposition to uh, going into NAFTA and the World Trade Organization. There were a lot of Americans who wanted to maintain our sovereignty as a nation. They didn't want to relinquish our sovereignty to this world government. And at the very end of this, why Schlesinger writes this, The world of law will not be attained by exhortation. Law requires enforcement. Let's not kid ourselves that we can have a new world order without paying for it, with blood as well as with money. Maybe the cost of enforcements are too great. National interests narrowly construed may well be a safer rule. But let us recognize that we are surrendering a noble dream, Remember those lines of Tennyson that uh, Churchill called the most wonderful of modern prophecies and that Harry Truman carried in his wallet throughout his life? For I dipped into the future, far as any eye could see, saw a vision of the world and all the wonder that would be, heard the heavens filled with shouting and the rain to ghastly dew of the nation's airy navies grappling in the central blue, till the war drum throbbed no longer and the battle flags were furled in the parliament of man, the federation of the world. Now, if you read what Arthur Schlesinger Jr. has written, why, you'll notice he refers to Churchill. Churchill embraced this idea. Well, why did Churchill embrace this? Wasn't Churchill the great champion of the British Empire? And why did Harry Truman... Uh, embrace this idea wasn't he dedicated to America and then if you go back and you remember what happened during Harry Truman's administration uh, why Eastern Europe went communist now everybody wants to say oh well that was FDR the uh, agreements he made with Stalin but Harry Truman said it best when he said the buck stops here the buck stops with the president and it happened on his watch and he could have stopped it but under his watch, we turned Eastern Europe over to the Communists at the end of the Second World War. And then of course, we turned China over to the Communists. And what most people have forgotten is how the the Communists happened to take China. Well, in 1948, 47, and 49, uh, there was a policy in our State Department uh, to do everything they could to undercut General Chiang kai of the nationalist government, and bring communism to power. And uh, if you go back and you read the McCarran Committee reports, which we have and which we make available to anybody who would like to have them, uh, why the, the Senate Committee found uh, that... General Chiang Kai-shek had been undercut by American policy, would put an arms embargo on General Chiang Kai-shek so he couldn't buy weapons anywhere in the world. And even the weapons he had already bought and purchased, uh, which were on Okinawa and other Pacific islands, he couldn't get his hands on. Uh, and so it wasn't that uh, he was ever defeated in battle. He didn't lose the civil war. There wasn't any war. He just retreated about three weeks ahead of the Chinese communists who were advancing because they had nothing to fight with. Well, Congress was very upset about that. It looked like China was going to go communist, and here our boys had fought a war to allow the people of the world to determine the type of government they wanted. So Congress appropriated $125 million, which today would be probably a billion, a billion and a half dollars, for weapons for Chiang Kai-shek. But the State Department kept the ships laden with the weapons in port in San Francisco and Los Angeles for a year and a half. And when the ships finally arrived in China after uh, the communists controlled the nation, they broke open the cases uh, why the bolts didn't fit the rifles and they were therefore useless. We brought communism to China, you see, and it happened under Harry Truman's watch. And the question is, why did that happen? Well, before the evening is over, I hope you'll understand why that happened. Because there are people who have a different vision of the world than you and I. They believe in the Parliament of Man and the federation of the world. The second poem I encountered when I was teaching and living in South Africa <clears throat> that time, my son was attending the University of california uh, University of Cape Town Medical School, and I went down to visit him and I noticed up on the hillside at the base of Table Mountain, that great flat top mountain that towers over Cape Town uh, a monument i 'd never seen it before, and so we decided to walk up and see what it was. Uh, it looked like a small replica of the Lincoln Memorial with the vertical pillars and a flat top but Of course, this was not in marble; it was in gray granite and. Uh, we trudged up the long, dusty path and came to the base of the stairs leading up uh, to the monument itself, and on either side are these great granite lions uh, guarding the entranceway, and you get inside past the pillars, and there's nothing there but a great pedestal, and on top of the pedestal, the bust of a man about twice life-size with a stern look on his face and hollowed-out eyes that follow you wherever you move for you've dared to enter his sanctuary. But engraved in the granite on the pedestal beneath the bust are these words. The intense and brooding spirit still shall quicken and control. Living, he was the land and dead. His soul shall be her soul. And, of course, you have to understand that that was the eulogy that was read at Cecil John Rhodes' funeral in 1902. It was written by Rudyard Kipling, his close friend and associate. And what most people do not understand uh, is that to quicken is to come back to life after death. And Cecil Rhodes still lives on. His shadow hangs long over Africa and Europe. And the movement that he began dominates the country in which you live today. Because Cecil Rhodes had a dream a dream of the Parliament of Man, the Federation of the World, of creating a secret society uh, that would one day bring about a world government. And so he left his great fortune to two purposes. One was to the secret society, and the other was to something known as the Rhodes Scholarships. Now, it is not simply coincidence that our president, President Clinton, happens to be a Rhodes Scholar, that the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe... Uh, General Wesley Clark happens to be a Rhodes Scholar, uh, that the, um, Deputy Secretary of State Strobe Talbot is a Rhodes Scholar. In fact, Rhodes Scholars are at every level of our government. They're working within our major banks, our industries. They're the presidents, not a teaching at our colleges. They're the presidents of our colleges. Because the men who were taken from the United States and from Europe and from the various British colonies and sent to Oxford for our Rhodes Scholarships are there indoctrinated in these ideas of world government, indoctrinated in the idea that we really need an elite, Uh, to rule the world, because you common people are incapable of governing yourselves. And after three years there, as their faith in God is undermined and and replaced with this belief in this new spirituality, uh, they return to America. And, of course, they go into key positions. And if you want to get ahead in the world, maybe you'd like to become the president. One of the best places to go is to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. Now, the third poem was written by James Russell Lowell, describing that age-old controversy uh, that has been with us since the dawn of mankind, that struggle between good and evil. And this is what James Russell Lowell wrote. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide. In that strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side. Then it is the brave man chooses while the coward stands aside until the multitudes make virtue of the faith they have denied. Though the cause of evil prospers, yet his truth alone is strong, though a portion be the scaffold and upon the throne be wrong. But that scaffold sways the future, for in the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. And he's describing that struggle that began in the Garden of Eden and has been continuing ever since then, a struggle between truth and falsehood, uh, between God and the forces of darkness. Now, to really understand what we're about to tell you this evening, I want to tell you a story. It's a murder mystery. It was uh, the murder on the Orient Express, and that's a picture of the Orient Express, uh, which a train which traveled. Across the continent of Europe for uh, many generations, uh, linking the mystery of the East with the rationalism of the West, went from Istanbul to Paris. And the story was written by Agatha Christie of the murder on the Orient Express. It was a a wonderful story. It was eventually made into a movie uh, with such people as Albert Finney, as Inspector Perot. Lauren Bacall, Ingrid Bergman, Jacqueline Bisset, Martin Balsam, Sean Connery, Anthony Perkins, Vanessa Redgrave, and Richard Winmark as Mr. Ratchett. Truly a, a cast that most directors or producers would die for. And it starts uh, in Istanbul as the train is being boarded. Uh, and it's interesting that most of the people getting onto the train are either English or uh, Americans. Uh, unusual to see so many Americans boarding a train uh, in uh, in Istanbul. Monsieur Perrault is a world-famous Belgian detective. He's world-famous because he's in a, a character in many of Agatha Christie's mystery stories, and he always solves the mystery. Well, as the story begins, why the train is beginning to move westward, and Mr. Ratchet, played by Richard Winmark, uh, and he's truly a despicable man. To meet him, obviously, is to come to dislike him. Uh, he engages Mr. Perot in conversation, and he says to Monsieur Perot, I believe my life is in danger. I'd like to have you guard my life on the train. I'll give you $5,000. And Monsieur Perot says, I am not the bodyguard. I'm a detective, world-famous detective, not interested, and... In- I'm not interested. Uh, The train goes into a tunnel, the screen goes black, and suddenly, as the train emerges, why uh, Mr. Ratchet is gone. But that very evening, Mr. Ratchet is murdered. Uh, he's obviously overdosed. Uh, he is stabbed 12 times. And Monsieur Perot is engaged by the president of the line that controls the Orient Express to solve the murder, uh, so it won't in any way reflect on the train. After all, it's pretty bad for business if people are, tr- are murdered on your train. And so Monsieur Perrault goes into the murder scene, and he finds clues. I mean, there are all sorts of clues there. And his comment is, there are too many clues here. There are too many clues. And in some respects, that's what we really see as we look at what's going on in America today. There are too many things happening. There are too many clues. There are too many uh, causes of what's going on. There's something known as cognitive disassociation or uh, cog- cognitive dissonance. And it's a concept that if you feed too many ideas into people's minds, they can't think effectively. They did this with Pavlovian dogs uh, years ago. They would train them to uh, salivate in response to a, a buzzer. And, of course, they sound the buzzer, the dog would salivate. Then they'd train him to to salivate in response to a bell, and he would salivate. And then they'd train him to salivate in response to perhaps a bong or something of the sort, or uh, scratching. And and then they'd do them all together, and he couldn't think, because our minds can only accept so many things going on at one time, and the dog would go over and curl up in the corner of of the cage and do nothing. And you have to understand, in many respects, this is what's happening to the American people. We face so, so many problems today. We face the problem of unrestricted abortion, an increasingly militant homosexuality where children are being taught in kindergarten that homosexuality is perfectly normal. Increasing crimes where court system that seems to be much more concerned about the, the criminal than the, than the victim. Uh, a drug epidemic, that no matter what we do, it keeps getting worse, Uh, the failing educational system, the destruction of our family with half of our marriages ending in divorce. Uh, We find the loss of patriotism. We find new diseases, uh, HIV disease and Legionnaires' disease and Hanta uh, virus, and then we find new mycoplasm infections and all sorts of new diseases, many of them drug-resistant. We don't know what to do with them. We find ever-increasing government control over our lives and uh, increasing persecution of Christians not only... uh, in other countries but even here in the united states where uh if you were to go to a a teacher were to go to a student and say well you might be homosexual try it you might like it that would be all right but if you were to say god loves you why that teacher would lose their job and there's something wrong with the picture the failure of our churches to speak out on moral and political issues, an ever-growing number of wars and revolutions, the absence of a missile defense for America, and the case, in the face of increasing uh, Russian hostility, uh, lots of things are, are of serious concern. And I think you can't look at what's going on in the world today without being concerned. So who's really responsible for the things that are happening in America today? And there are many, many people who suggest uh, that behind everything going on, Uh, are the bankers. Because after all, when we have wars, the bankers make money. Uh, When we have inflation, the bankers make money. When we have a recession, the bankers take your home and your farms and the bankers make money. And there's a great deal of evidence to suggest that this is not something new, but this has been going on uh, for literally centuries. And so one of my favorite books is written by Thomas uh, Jefferson. It's called The Master Thoughts of Thomas Jefferson. The book was actually published in 1909, but it describes something that Thomas Jefferson wrote almost 200 years ago, and among his thoughts are these. Everything predicted by the enemies of banks at the beginning is now coming to pass. We are to be ruined now by a deluge of bank paper as we were formerly by the old continental paper. It is cruel that such revolutions in private fortunes should be at the mercy of avarice adventurers who, instead of employing their capital, if any they have, in manufactures, commerce, and other useful pursuits, make it an instrument to burden all the interchanges of property with their swindling profits, profits which are the price of no useful industry of theirs. Prudent men must be on their guard in this game of robins alive and take care that the spark does not extinguish in their hands." I am an enemy to all bank discounting bills or notes for anything but coin. But our whole country is so fascinated by this jack-o'-lantern of wealth that they'll not stop short of its total and fatal explosion. And, of course, today we see the stock market uh, progressively
0: going up. And many, many people think it's going to I'm going to interrupt right there and encourage you to get these five discs, four titles, valued at $105 for a gift of just $35. The topics are Exposing the Illuminati from Within, one of the most famous by Bill Sneblin, Illuminati, Game or Blueprint for World Domination that Set the Internet Afire, Secrets of the Illuminati by Dr. Stan Monteith, and Secrets of Solomon's Key by Michael Hoggard. Five discs, four of the best DVDs we made over 26 years at the Prophecy Club, valued at $105, available at ProphecyClub.com for $35. It's the Illuminati gift offer, gift of $35 at ProphecyClub.com, ProphecyClub.com. You can also watch it instantly at WatchProphecyClub.com. In 2017, I memorized the book of Revelation just as a simple project. Surprisingly, I began to receive information on 30 revelations and two visions beyond what is found in the Bible. God showed me a secret door, which is based upon a single word found in Revelation of Leviticus, linking the feasts to the prophecies. When linked, a person enters into an understanding of Bible prophecy not previously known. Even though I've been in the world of Bible prophecy for 40 years, frankly, I did not know anything of what is in this book. One prophetic word described it this way. There is a lock that I have put over a word in the book of Revelation that I'm going to open to you. It will turn so many books written on the end time message into obsolete books. That's this book. Topics are Jesus returns on what feast, the secret of the feasts, who are the two witnesses, what is the morning star, the judgment seat explained, the great white throne explained, the nations explained, what is the shout, and the parables explained. Seals, trumpets, and vials go in what water? Two amazing prophecy charts on the back flap, 12 inches by 9 inches. Imagine a book on prophecy that brings a fresh, new, accurate perspective. I don't want you to get one book for $20. I want you to get five books for $30 or 10 for 55 it's called The Secret Door to Understand Bible Prophecy. Available at prophecyclub.com. The Secret Door to Understand Bible Prophecy. One for 20. No, no, no. Don't do that. You want to get five for 30 or the best deal, 10 for 55. Prophecyclub.com. October 4, 5, and 6, it's the Understanding End Times Conference. Living Word Fellowship, Evansville, Indiana. Friday evening, 630, I'll speak on my seven seals, seven trumps, seven vials chart. Saturday morning 10 a.m I'll speak on my feast and revelation prophecies chart Saturday evening 5 p.m Leslie will speak on the Kundalini spirit Sunday morning at 10 a.m I'll take half the time with miss the mark my new book and Leslie will take the rest of it as you know I'm called to build an in-time army of prophecy teachers working miracles I want you to come so I can lay hands on you and anoint you for you to receive two anointings the spirit of revelation as I received it when I memorized the book of Revelation. Two, to work in sevenfold miracles when the judgment arrives. The room only holds 350 people, and the church is probably going to take from 100 to 150 of them, so it will fill quickly. I suggest you do the $25 registration quickly at endtimesconference.com. $25 registration at endtimesconference.com, October 4, 5, and 6, Understanding End Times Conference, Living Word Fellowship, Evansville, Indiana. See you there! You can now watch 160 Prophecy Club recordings and soon over 300 without interruption. Most people would agree. 300 titles, normally $30 each. A gift of $100 a month would be reasonable. $50 a pretty good deal, but the introductory rate for a limited time is just $20, recurring monthly subscription. A one-year subscription is a gift of $200, There's no contract, you can cancel any time you want to, and you get the first three days free just to check it out. The best deal is a yearly subscription that'll lock in your rate for a year, even when we raise the rates. WatchProphecyClub.com. Go check it out. WatchProphecyClub.com.